Hi everyone, welcome to How to Live, a podcast that explores ways to live a good life. I'm your host Sharad Lal. This is episode 17. In today's episode, we talk about intimate relationships. How do we build and maintain a healthy relationship with our spouse or our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our partner? We explore key questions. What's the balance between being dependent on our partner versus being fiercely independent? What's the balance between thinking of our own needs versus others? The role of negotiation in relationships. How do we have a fun and regular sex life? Building self-awareness to understand our impact, both positive and negative, on our relationship. And a lot more. To help us through these questions, we welcome Dr. Oberdin Marionetti to today's episode. Dr. Oberdin is a leading psychologist and a clinical sexologist in Singapore. As a founder of multiple wellness initiatives, Dr. Oberdin has served a clientele of individuals, couples and groups from over 50 countries. He works across both private and corporate settings. He's a TEDx speaker and an influential thought leader in the wellness space. Dr. Oberdin is constantly innovating. In 2018, he launched Om Ice, a process that combines psychology, breathwork, movement and cold exposure in a retreat setting. He started his career in the corporate world with Standard Chartered Bank and HSBC before transitioning to his passion, wellness and mental health. Dr. Oberdin has worked with a range of couples over decades. He shares his wisdom in simple, digestible language using analogies, metaphors and case studies to make complicated concepts digestible. But before getting into the interview, a huge thank you to everyone for all your support. The podcast is now among the top 5% globally. We listen to in over 55 countries. Thank you. From today's episodes, details of Dr. Oberdin will be available in the show notes if you wish to contact him. For the show notes, you can hit howtolive.live slash episodes. Now here's the interview. Good morning, Dr. Oberdin. Great to have you on How to Live. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you, Sharad. And what about you? I'm doing well, having a good morning. Dr. Oberdin, in your experience, what are some of the relationship challenges that you see people facing today? The biggest relationship challenge I see people struggle with is that with themselves, which then manifests itself in friendships and in their intimate relationships with in-laws, with employers, with colleagues. The thing, Sharad, is that we've been conditioned from very early age to subscribe and comply to external demands that are not necessarily aligned to who we are as human beings. We are given a set of external rules that we must comply to. It's necessary, otherwise we would be dysfunctional in the world, but that slowly erode our connection to ourselves. Imagine, Sharad, you were born a peach tree and you have gone about your task of growing healthy and strong in the orchard surrounded by all these other trees. And one day you start producing some of the most amazing and sweet peaches the orchard has to offer. But everybody around you keeps telling you that you need to be able to produce pears to be successful. The message is so consistently being delivered to you that one day you wake up early in the morning to go to the fruit market, take a bunch of pears, get back to the orchard, remove all the peaches from your tree, and then put pears on the branches. And you go about life having this successful life somewhat, 
by using so much energy distant from who you really are, failing to recognize that if you were to offer the sweetest peaches in the orchard, you could eventually find a path to fulfillment and satisfaction that your current pair life doesn't give you. That's a very powerful example, Dr. Oberdin. It's our relationship with ourselves because of these external boundaries or influences that have been put on us. We've lost touch with ourselves. And now two individuals who've lost touch with themselves, but come together in an intimate relationship. How does mm. that then complicate things even further? Oh, wonderful question, Sherard. It's fundamental because very often we end up in intimate relationships with someone who we believe can fulfill the gaps within ourselves that we know we crave consciously or subconsciously, but we haven't been able to fulfill. There's so many people who grew up somewhat neglected in terms of affection. And so let's say he gets into a relationship with a woman with whom he discovers this beautiful sense of connection because she's by nature a very caring person. On her part, she might have learned that as a consequence of her family situation, where perhaps her uh, parents were uh, highly stressed and she learned that maybe to uh, accommodate the family pressures, she would make herself as small as possible, provide no burden by asking for whatever she needed and be hyper attentive to everybody else's needs that she would try and cater for preemptively to hopefully keep the family harmony. Mm. One, the neglected party, and one, the hyper-caring party, might then create a relationship dynamic where they are feeding off of each other emotional gaps. And the truth is that there is no partner that can ever fulfill those gaps. And so then that becomes a dysfunctional dynamic where you have what at the beginning was a very endearing and loving connection because it makes us feel we finally found the thing that we were so desperate for. But often the demands on the other partner become too many and indeed they are unreasonable because it's not up to their partner to fulfill them and frictions begin to emerge. And it is when we then lack the skills to address these frictions skillfully that the relationships begin to suffer. A healthy relationship is not one devoid of conflict. In fact, conflict is healthy. I fear when clients come to me and with a sense of pride actually tell me we've never fought a day in our relationship. I'm using words that can easily be misconstrued, thought, conflict, which have very negative connotation. I'm using them in their broader sense of the word to encompass the confrontations, the exchanges that are uncomfortable, are unpleasant, but indeed, as I mentioned, necessary to negotiate a healthy relationship. I was very intrigued when you talked about the relationship of an isolated person and a hyper-connected person. And to me, like on the surface of it, that seems so right because they're getting what they need out of each other. But then, like you mentioned, when you're looking for more and more, which cannot be given, and that's where the conflict arises. So what's the balance between being dependent on your spouse to being independent and strong by yourself? Another wonderful and complex question, I'm afraid. The balance comes from recognizing that you can indeed make requests, even demands, to have some of your needs met by your partner, 
but up to a point. So using the example you quoted again just now, it's absolutely fine to be with a partner who then leads the social agenda of the relationship and enjoy fully the fact that you are with someone who has developed that skill and therefore benefit from the presence of that skill in the relationship. That's perfectly fine. What is not fine, as you labeled it, is when we then begin to demand more and more. The more isolated partner might say, hey, darling, would you be able to organize like a a, a once a week event with friends? Now, that would be a healthy thing to do, knowing that the other partner has access, has the network, has the skills to do it. Now, at one point, the more isolated partner might start to go to the other partner and say, hey, you know what? I think you're going out too much. I'm missing you greatly when you go out three, four times a week without me. We're spending too little time together and I need you to stay at home with me and no longer go out so often. Maybe you're allowed to go out once a week without me. Now, obviously, in that request, there might be a genuine emotional need hidden, but this is where the couples often begin to find conflict, the bad type of conflict, because either the need isn't expressed clearly and or it is received as an impingement of one's own freedom and preferences, and therefore the negotiation that is necessary to find the happy ground cannot be had. And so this is an example where a healthy need can suddenly turn into, yet again, an unhealthy one. Understand. Do you have any example of how someone came to you, a couple, and and what were the issues, and, and then how did they make that little shift towards connecting better, understanding each other better? A recent example of a very common setting of two professionals, both hyper busy with work and tasks and kids and the typical life demands, if you may, where one party felt a much stronger need for emotional connection than the other. And again, like in most dynamics, you would have their need being healthy up to a point and then unhealthy up to the other on both sides. And this is what we call an avoidant anxious setup, where the avoidant partner is the one who's stepping away from the relationship to maintain the independence and the sense of self, while the anxious partner craves that connection, craves the presence and the ongoing exchanging to ultimately be reassured that the relationship still stands. In reality, Sharad, It is for both partners the same fear, which is interesting, really. Also for the avoidant partner, even though they are, quote-unquote, doing the abandoning, their fear is the same. And the narrative there being, if I avoid getting embedded into this love, I don't have to risk losing it. I don't have to risk being abandoned. And therefore, the best insurance policy is to not get in the first place. But ultimately, they both crave that love and connection. So at one point of the conversation, one of their uh, partners, the avoidant one, said, now and again, depending on circumstances, it's okay for one to take a step back from the relationship. 
the other partner almost jumped out of the sofa and said, what? Mm. You cannot erase the relationship now and again just because it's convenient to you. And the other party then replied, you're always so extreme. I'm not saying erase. I'm just saying taking a step back. Now, this is an example of two partners communicating their needs, and again, part of which are both healthy, but then because of a language issue, become the opportunity for yet another blow-up. Because when the partner A, let's call it the avoidant partner, used the words, take a step back, they didn't mean in the slightest abandon the relationship, abandon the law of the connection, the engagement. They just meant, I need to step back. But when the other party was feeling anxious, was feeling insecure about this connection, then says, you cannot erase the relationship, you get an indication that they're not hearing what the partner is saying. They are hearing, you're going to abandon me. And then we had a few back and forth to help again, as I mentioned earlier, translate what was happening. And the avoidant partner then clarified using this structure. When I get overwhelmed by work, I am in survival mode. I get so stretched that I no longer have any space for anything or anyone else. All I have space for is to focus on the tasks on hand. In those moments, my love for you is still full and real, but I feel unable to find any energy to connect to it and share it. This is a simple formula we use that I help the client put together and then communicate back to the other uh, partner, the anxious partner. This was sufficient for the other partner to be reassured that, oh, this has nothing to do with me. It's literally that my partner doesn't have any more left in them to pay attention to anything else. So ultimately, I think I'm safe because what I'm hearing is that I am still loved. Communication language is such an important skill so that if partners do not do this well over a period of time, they reach a state where they might actually have good intent for each other and even be meant for each other, but they could reach, as they say, differences that cannot be reconciled. So how should people who are in conflict think about language? I would recommend that people communicate starting with a sense of awareness of self and what it is they're mm. trying to convey. It's the equivalent of going into a meeting of any kind, having spent zero time thinking about what do I want to get out of this meeting? What is my mission? When you go in totally blank, unprepared, you can easily be swayed by the winds of the conversation mm. and the negotiation because you don't know what track you're standing on. But if I go in the conversation conscious, for example, about the fact that I want to negotiate with my partner that at least twice a week we will meet at home over dinner to have meaningful conversations, now I can step into a negotiation knowing what I'm trying to achieve and therefore better equipped to understand whether the conversation is losing track or I'm being derailed or I'm getting lost in whatever emotions might, might emerge. Knowing our needs and then going into these difficult conversations works well. If you're thinking our needs, sometimes some people think we're being selfish, we're thinking about ourselves. 
how should these people think about selfishness in the context of a relationship? If we fly and go from A to B on an airplane, regardless of the airline, you will always get a briefing at the beginning of the flight that says, in the event of oxygen masks dropping from above you, please wear your mask first before you then help others, your elderly, your children, the disabled people around you, whatever. Now, do we think that's selfish? Probably not, because we do understand the reason every single airline in the world has designed that safety process like that is because if we are starving of oxygen and therefore suffocating, we are likely to be totally useless to mm. the people who we want to support. It is absolutely the exact same process we need to follow in everyday life. I find, especially in collectivist societies like Asia, is this idea of stepping away from the self as being the standard has created a dynamic where when people think about looking after themselves, they think of it as being selfish. And selfish in this case is with the most negative connotation one can imagine. The truth is, if you are suicidal, and I'm quoting a real case here, because you don't want to leave the corporate job that is killing you because you have to pay maintenance to your mom and dad who are rich and don't need it, but that you need to do it because it's what's expected from the family, that's not healthy. If you are suicidal because since birth that you are homosexual and you are considering being introduced to potential partners for marriage by your parents and you cannot absolutely under any circumstances disappoint them because otherwise that would be selfish, that's also not healthy. Now, I appreciate these are two extremes examples where I quoted individuals literally being suicidal. But I can quote you hundreds, if not thousands of examples of people giving themselves up in the quest to fulfill roles that have taken them away from themselves, who think that relaxing 10 minutes is the most selfish thing they could possibly do. So whoever out there is thinking that looking after ourselves to come back to a healthy, strong and happy human being who can then and only then have the best resources within themselves to be of value to society, to their loved ones, to their employers, to their employees, and to their friends, is not a selfish thing whatsoever. It's the healthy thing to do, is what we must do to redress the balance. Key word in here, obviously, is balance. We don't want to move to the other end of the spectrum where it's all about me, 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 because of course now many of the themes of modern society, especially for the youth, are that we should value ourselves and we come first above and beyond anything and anybody, which clearly is unhealthy too. So balance is key. It is perfectly fine and indeed the healthy thing to do to look after ourselves and to redress the balance when the commitments we have to others are literally sometimes killing our well-being and our health. The other thing that people might struggle with is relationships should be seamless. And many people have an idealistic viewpoint. It should be seamless. I shouldn't be negotiating and figuring out 
how should these people think about negotiation in the context of a relationship? This is the product of the very unhealthy rubbish we see on social media. We've seen for decades in Hollywood mm. and in silly magazines uh, portraying this happily ever after uh, mode of being in a relationship, which is clearly totally and, and utterly unrealistic. You might have seen in my profile, I'm a sex and relationship therapist. So often I talk to couples and individuals about their sex life. One of the most frequent things I hear from couples who come to see me because they now live in a sexless relationship, when I recommend that they sit down to negotiate and organize their sexual lives, is something along the lines of, that's ludicrous because sex should be spontaneous. If it's not spontaneous, it means it's not natural. If it's not natural, it means he, she doesn't want it and therefore I don't want to engage in it. It's sad to realize that we are looking, in this case, at sex as something so different from anything else in the relationship that we shouldn't be negotiating it. We should just magically happen to, to, to come upon it. Relationships these days, like individual everyday life, are taxing, are so busy that it's very difficult to fit everything we need in them. And we have to plan holidays. We have to plan our finances. We have to plan uh, food. We have to plan uh, school runs. We have to plan kids' health and doctor's visits and playtime. And why do we not need to plan intimate time, sexual time, date time, conversation time, in-laws time? And all of these demands, because literally that is what they are, all of these demands are natural components of what makes up a relationship, what makes up life. And because every individual comes at each of these topics with different beliefs, needs, and value set, when we are in a relationship, those differences must be negotiated. And this is something I want to link back to what I said earlier in relation to conflict. It is conflict in the sense of negotiating differences that is the healthy type and that hopefully couples can learn to do skillfully, quickly, and efficiently and effectively. But negotiation in a relationship is an absolute must. Mm. It's a necessary tool to negotiate and navigate two different individuals and if they have kids, multiple individuals, all with different needs, requirements, and abilities. I have a follow-up question on sex life. What do we as a couple bring to our sex life based on the baggage that we have? Like you said, very often we live our life based on external circumstances. How does that come into our sex life and affect it as a couple? The added layer of complexity when it comes to sex is that, unfortunately for the large majority of us, East and West alike, it still today is a taboo subject. And you would be surprised how many couples who have been together for 10, 20, 30 years, who have had kids and therefore clearly have had sex, have never, and I literally mean it, never sat down to openly converse about their sexual life and needs. It is a rampant number of individuals who has that experience. As I mentioned, a lot of it has to do with the fact that sex is deemed to be taboo. 
So you already have the conditions, as explained earlier, where couples are not sitting down to express their needs and negotiate. You add on top of it a thick layer of stigma and taboo, and suddenly you have a recipe for disaster. And so often you end up with this situation, which is, this is not sad, like I said in the previous example, this is tragic. And I must uh, share this, many, most couples and individuals tell me at some point or another, if we are doing sex therapy with them, the mantra that, of course, doc, it's normal to not want to have sex with your partner after uh, you've been together for a while. And please understand that the word while can change from couple to couple. I've Mm. had some who while meant after five years, after 10 years. I have some for whom after a while is a few weeks (laughs) and they've gotten bored of each other already sexually. When people tell me that it is very normal to lose interest in one's own intimate partner sexually after a while that they've been together, Unfortunately, they also mean that it is natural and therefore it's the thing that is supposed to happen in our nature. There's nothing further from the truth. Would I agree that it is normal, i.e. by a statistical measure of a normal distribution, many, most couples end up in a situation where their sex life has lost the spark, the interest? Yes, I would agree that statistically speaking, if we were to sample 100 couples, the large majority would say, yes, we have lost interest. But I absolutely refute and refuse the idea, as it is implied by what my clients tell me, that it is natural. The association that is normal, therefore natural, is wrong. The reason it happens so often is linked to what we shared earlier, which is couples don't talk to each other, Mm. especially about sex. Now, if I served you every single day, I mean, people would be lucky if they were served that meal every single day, (laughs) but follow the analogy for a second. If I served you every single day for three meals a day, white rice with, I'm Italian, so I'm going to put some olive oil on it, Mm. with olive oil, would it be acceptable to imagine that after a while you would get bored to death with white rice with olive oil? I would say yes, of course. Would it be imaginable that you could then come to me and say, hey, you know what? I notice we keep having white rice with olive oil. Are there alternatives? And that maybe from that question, would it also be imaginable that a negotiation could ensue? Yes, I think it could be imaginable. But how many people actually do that? And that couples will actually invest time, energy, and effort in, number one, checking in with themselves. What do I think about sex? What do I need from sex? What does sex mean to me in my life? How important is it? What type of sexual being do I want to be? How do I want to express this sexual being in my relationship? Number two, having found the answers to those questions and assessed what their current sexual life with their partner looks and feels like, then sit down with the partner and say, darling, this is what I've discovered of our white rice with olive oil and why I'm getting bored with it. Do you think we could do this and this about Mm. it? And by the way, I'd love to hear what you think about all these things. 
And three, having done that, staying open to an ongoing dialogue. I repeat, ongoing dialogue. Do we imagine after such three steps that our sex life might begin to rekindle and one day be maintained healthy? Yes, of course. But we don't do this. It's normal. It's not natural. You can, everybody can, rediscover a joyful, fulfilling, satisfying sexual life with themselves and with their partner if they work at it openly. Many people have, you mentioned, some amount of shame with some of their sexual desires as well because it's not talked openly. So what's the way to to do it? Because sometimes you might say it and you might get snubbed by the partner. It may not be a serious conversation. What's the way to start something like this for people who haven't been able to do that? The way, Sharad, is with courage. I give you a slightly unrelated example, but this is also important. Sometimes I'm working with an individual client who comes to me and says, hey, I'm having this trouble at home. I keep being verbally abused. There's a lot of anger. I can't put my point across. And then we look at how they put their point across. And often there might be ways in which they are doing it that is not very skillful. And so we then work on creating the right tools and the right skills for them to communicate healthily and skillfully to their partner in the hope that then a healthy negotiation and exchange and conflict resolution can be found. It is very common, however, the client coming back at a later date saying, Doc, I've done exactly how you told me. I had even rehearsed the formulas and the things I learned, and I know I did it calmly and I delivered skillfully. And my partner just snapped back mm. at me with even more fury. Now, I am highlighting this because we individually can only ever be responsible for what we do ourselves in the way we communicate to our partner. What do I mean by that? I can only control. I can only shape, I can only modify, learn and adapt the things that I do or don't do, the things that I know or don't know. I have zero power to change my partner. I have power to influence my partner, mm. but I can't change them. Therefore, like it is the case that I'm referring to, if this partner refused to come to therapy, and the one I'm working with is doing everything they can to improve, but the other party just won't hear it. You have to understand there are some situations where there is no way out. Mm. And the only way is out if the abuse is too much. But the point I'm trying to highlight with this example is that we can do our best always. Mm. We can strive to do our best always. But we cannot guarantee that even when we are at our best, we are going to get a skillful response back. We are going to get someone who's open to sit down and discuss and explore and negotiate and find that common happy ground we all strive for. And if that is the case, then you have to make your decisions as to what their relationship is for you and what you need to do with it. If it's not the case, then hallelujah, because it means that your changes, your learning, your growth, your healing is also influencing your partner, 
who can then experience their learning, their growth, and their healing. That's another powerful point. It's if your partner is willing to do the work with you, then there's, of course, an opportunity to mend it and even make it stronger. But if the partner's at a different level where they don't want to work on it and, and, and you're doing all you can, that is a sign that maybe this is not the right relationship. Indeed. Imagine my partner signs us up for salsa classes. Mm. And let's say that I, I just can't dance. I'm not built for dance. I have zero intention to dance. But somehow, given the nature of this relationship, I feel compelled to say yes to avoid yet another blow up. And so we go to the first class and she's learning the moves. I'm not learning the moves and I'm not interested to learn the moves. There is no way my partner, even if she continues taking intense classes and becomes a salsa master, can eventually have me dance with her at that level if all I want is to be on the spot, not moving, not trying, and on top of it, be resentful because I'm being forced to be here. It is absolutely necessary that for a relationship to shift to a healthy level that both partners in their own way are open to making changes, are open to connect in a healthy dialogue. Coming back to what you started with, I think that's the center point of everything that I took away. It's knowing oneself and knowing one's needs. And when we do that and understand our authentic needs and self, that puts us in the best place to have good relationships with our spouses, with everyone else. How do we go about doing it? How do we go about figuring out who we truly are and what are our needs? That is the $1 million question. <laughs> and it is indeed a, a necessary step. And please let me highlight, it is the start. It is not the whole game. It's a process of both reverse engineering and complementing. Imagine it this way. You are looking at the world from your viewpoint, from your eyes, and your eyes for however many years you've been on planet Earth have shone a light from you to the outside world so consistently that you have literally forgotten somehow that you exist and mm. you are part of this world. And that the world as you see it, as you see, wouldn't exist unless you existed. Therefore, step number one, which is that of reverse engineering, is to looking at the process of shining the light on things to realize that, hey, I already have the skills of shining the light on things. I already have the skills to assess requirements, in this case in the external world, and then apply my resources to meet those needs, all I now need to do is to take that mindset, is to take that attitude, is to take those skills and turn the light on me so that I can shine a light on this being and I can begin to inquire, what do I need? Who am I? What place do I occupy in the world? What place do I want to occupy in the world? So reverse engineering is the first process, and it's the idea that we use all of the tools and the skills and the resources and the attitudes we already have applied externally. We shine the light on us, and we start there. Complementing is the idea that 
We don't necessarily focus our attention on removing something. Once we form the habit, it's called a habit for a reason. We've done it repetitively long enough that it has become a habit, which means a habitual automatic behavior or thought or emotion or reaction of some sort. Trying to undo something so deeply embedded takes an enormous amount of energy. Now, can it be done? Yes. But in my experience, a more skillful strategy is that of complementing by creating a new positive habit that eventually comes to balance. No. Imagine two containers. Container number one is the one with your unhealthy habit. In this case, looking at the outside world and never looking at myself. If that container is 0 to 100 and 100 is full, let's say it's at 80. Now, I could work very hard to empty that container from 80 to 0 or to 5 or to a low number. But what I believe it's more useful is to concentrate on container number 2 and I would want to work so that I could bring the number higher and higher and higher Hopefully, one day where I can come at, say, 85 and 80, so that I have a balanced view on how much, how much do I need to look at myself vis-a-vis the world, and how do I then create a solution that meets a balanced view of both needs. Now, some practical examples for the reverse engineering. And I'm going to give you two very simple examples that I've heard frequently in one version or another. Example number one, I'm at work pre-COVID time, the office, colleagues come to me and says, hey, Oberdan, we're going down for lunch. Would you like to join? And people being paralyzed, not knowing what the appropriate answer is because they don't know where they stand. Or having said yes, they say, then receive another question. And we decided to go to the local Italian restaurant. And again, freezing or thereabout because they thought they wanted to have Chinese food today. And now they have this dilemma of how do I answer this question? And what do I choose? Do I choose the social gathering with food I didn't choose? Or do I stay on my own and go for the Chinese Mm -hmm. restaurant that maybe I was thinking to visit? Simple example. And yet in that moment, pausing to check in with, okay, right here and now, what do I need? Do I want to go down there and forfeit my Chinese meal? Or given that I've had pizza last night, I still prefer to go for the Chinese and meet them for coffee after lunch. Mm. The very act of asking these simple questions is enough to start the journey of Mm. shining the light on us. Another example I've heard in one form or another, I invite you to a dinner party, Sherrod, and I say to you, welcome, Sherrod, make yourself comfortable. I got some wine open. What would you like? And the person often answering, oh, whatever you've got available. (laughs) And then we might begin this ping pong game. No, seriously, what you want? I've got white, I've got red, I've got whatever. No, don't worry about it. Whatever you want. And often I find that even these very simple preferences are a product of the fact that you haven't developed a sense of self that says, hey, I enjoy wine in general, but I notice that when I sip red wine, I have a different experience than the one I have when I have white wine. 
yet another example of paying attention to self to raise awareness of our needs, preferences, likes and dislikes, starting small Mm. so that as life progresses, we become more and more accustomed to hear and recognize our needs in real time. Thank you, Dr. Oberdin, for such an engaging and useful conversation. Many of us couples are struggling with maintaining a healthy relationship. For folks who'd like to get in touch with Dr. Oberdin, you can find him on oberdinmarionetti.com. The link is in the show notes and the episode description. If you have problems finding him online, do drop me a line and I'll connect you. Here are some action steps that we could all consider. Firstly, self-awareness. What are our needs from the various relationships we have? How do we communicate them? Can we try communicating our needs better with small requests like lunch or what wine to have as a starting point? In episode 15, we talk about needs and saying no. You can check that episode out for more on needs and boundaries. Second, what kind of sex life would we like to have? Can we have an open discussion with our spouse? There are many other areas you could consider. Self-care, negotiation in relationships, communications, etc. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Till next time, have a wonderful day ahead. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.